the Cold Dive. I'm Lucas, aka Corona Kirby, and this is the place for musings on cryptography, technology, and drawings with a ballpoint pen. This episode, I'd like to continue our discussion that we started a couple episodes ago about NPC in the head. Specifically, I'd like to go a bit more in depth on my project Rembu and also give sort of an overview of how to compile different architectures to Boolean circuits, including WASM, and also some of the choices I've been making recently in terms of manipulating these circuits inside of Rembu. So first, as a very basic recap, uh, MPC in the head is a technique for zero-knowledge proofs. So those allow you to prove some statement on data you have. So maybe you have financial records, you want to prove that those are consistent with the taxes you paid, and you want to prove that without revealing that data. So prove that you paid your taxes without revealing your financial data, even if that's relevant to the computation. And zero-knowledge proofs allow you to do that. And where MPC and the head protocols distinguish themselves from protocols like SNARKs, is that they have very fast proving, but verifying takes the same amount of time as proving and the proofs end up being quite large. But for smaller circuits, uh, this is a nice trade-off because you can, you can prove and verify very quickly. So that's quite interesting. So they occupy a, a different design point in the, in the space. And in the last episode, I described more how they work, so I won't really go over that again. I'd recommend you listen to the last episode. And at some point, I want to actually write how these things work in more detail on my blog. Uh, but the important thing to note is that the way they work is that you need to simulate executions of the program many times. So about 200 times or so, you need to run the, the program. And each of those runs, you have several different parties essentially running the program independently, except at certain points, they need to communicate with each other. And so this adds bits to the proof and also slightly makes certain operations a bit more complicated. For example, and is the operation where you need communication, whereas XOR is sort of free. And I guess this brings me straight into Boolean circuits, which are something we're going to spend a bit of time talking about today. So the simplest way to think of a Boolean circuit is just a program where the only operations you can do are XOR and, and that's enough to build basically any program. So the usual starting point for circuits is that you represent them as a graph. So you have input nodes and output nodes, and then you have gates. So a gate has two inputs and one output. So you have an AND gate, and you also have an XOR gate. And each of these has two inputs and one output. And then you can connect gates to inputs using wires. And you can also connect the outputs of gates to other gates, or even to the outputs of the circuit. So you can imagine this sort of graph as you might draw on a piece of paper where you connect different nodes to gates, and then the outputs of these gates to other gates, and then eventually connect them to the output of the circuit. And this is a way of describing a program. And the way your MPC in the head proof will work is that 
you basically do many executions of the of this circuit. And in each execution, the data is sort of secret shared. So the idea is that instead of having just the data itself, you may have several shares which uh, XOR together to make up the data. And that's one basic representation of circuits, but I, I don't think it's very worldly. So one transformation of the circuit, which is sort of orthogonal to how you represent it, is you can have more complex operations which sort of form larger bits of a circuit. For example, let's say I want to do OR, the OR of two bits. Well, one way to do it, do this is with NOT. So if I have NOT, a NOT gate, I can use that to create an OR gate using an AND gate. So I do NOT A, NOT B, uh, AND those together, and then I negate it once again. And that gives me the OR of A and B. And to do NOT, you can actually just use XOR, and you just make the other input to be a one bit. And it's also useful in your in your Boolean circuit to have certain inputs be public rather than all of the data being private. So you can explicitly design circuits where some of the input is public and then the verifier provides this input themselves. So if you're proving something like, oh, I know a value such that its hash is equal to this output, the output could be a public aspect of the circuit. And something that's also very useful in MPC and the head protocols is assertions. So you want, might want to assert that a value is one or zero. So that's sort of an alternative way to formulate the circuit. Instead of having output gates, since we're in the zero knowledge proof paradigm, you instead just have assertions. So as I execute the program, I reach these assertion nodes and they check that the value on a wire is one. And if that's the case, you proceed, otherwise you fail. And the idea is that the zero knowledge proof protocol lets you check that none of the assertions failed along your computation graph. So you can also add in more complicated constructs like you know, functions and arbitrary gates, and those just compile down to bits of the, of the graph. But if you're doing this, the graph isn't the most convenient representation. So one very close representation, which is equivalent, is that of uh, write once memory. So with this, you can imagine sort of a CPU. We have this big array of memory. And the idea is that the memory starts out being uninitialized, so the values are undefined. And the basic idea is that you can write to a cell in memory once, and you can also read from memory if it's been defined. And the way the program works is that first you fill in the start of memory with the private and public inputs, or just the private inputs, rather. And then at each stage, you execute one instruction, and an instruction takes in several of the cells in memory as input, and then writes to the next uh, available cell in, in the memory. So you can transform the graphs we had earlier into this representation. So if, for example, if I had an, uh, an AND gate of just two private bits, well, first I fill the two cells in memory with the private inputs. And then the next cell in memory would get filled by taking the AND of the 
two previous cells. And so with this representation, instead of having this complicated graph, you just have a sequence of instructions. So I may have, you know, initialize cell one with this private input, initialize cell two with this private input, etc. Then it's like, oh, cell four becomes the AND of three and two. Cell five becomes the XOR of four and two, etc. And then a relaxation of the write once condition is that you're allowed to read and write from memory uh, multiple times. So I can write for the same cell multiple times. I think this is not really advantageous because it's not much more expressive and also increases the size of the encoding. Because when you have this write once memory, you can sort of implicitly always use the next available cell memory as the output of an operation. And so you don't have to encode where you're going to write the, the result, which is simpler. But otherwise, the tr transitioning between the two is quite simple because if, if I have something where I write multiple times, I can sort of scan through the program and just create a new program which writes only once, just with a much larger array of memory. So that's sort of a trade-off you can make uh, to reduce space usage. If uh, you have a program where maybe it, you don't need that much space because you're sort of writing over it all the time. So that's a trade-off you can make. Another thing I, I sort of briefly touched on is public inputs. So you can have them as part of memory, but the problem is that then this might be inefficient because you sort of treat it with the same care you need to do for private inputs, which need to keep, be kept secret. So instead with public inputs, it's much more convenient to have them be baked into the operation. So maybe I have an XOR operation, which knows that one of the values is a public input. With XOR, that's not too useful, the MPC in the head case, because uh, XOR is, is cheap. But with AND, this is interesting because AND uh, has a cost to it because you need to communicate between the parties in the simulation, and it also adds bits to the proof. So if I AND with a public value, this doesn't add any bits to the proof and there's no communication with the simulation, so that's much faster. So I want to take advantage of that by explicitly encoding public inputs as you can think of them as sort of uh, baked into the circuit as constants, but it's also nice to explicitly say, I'm reading this public input, because that way the prover, instead of having to modify the circuit, or rather the verifier, instead of having to modify the circuit, they can just call a function with a given fixed circuit and their variable public input, which is quite useful. So I can design the circuit for, say, SHA and advance in advance, which would be my hash function. And I could use that with different public inputs to check uh, the circuit. <laughs> and so now the representation we have is that we have this big array of memory, and we can sort of write to each cell in memory once by using some kind of operation on previous uh, cells. So and 2 and 3, and get them to the next cell, x4, 5, and 6, get them to the next cell, etc. So a step above that is to have a sort of stack that you manipulate. So you can see this as sort of an alternative to memory or sort of an addition to memory. So if I have this RAM I can write to, let's say we can don't even have the write once uh, restriction anymore. So I have just this arbitrary you know, memory space where some of it gets initialized with the private inputs. Then I can write as many times as I want. The next step would be to add a stack. So this is sort of a space in memory that's separate from, from that. And the idea is that you have values on, on the stack, which exist, and I can push new values by reading from memory. 
So I can read, you know, 27, and that adds a new value on top of the stack. I can pop a value from the stack and put it somewhere in memory. And I can also do operations on the stack directly. So I can maybe and the top two values on the stack, which removes them and replaces them with their and, or their XOR, or whatever operation I have. So I can sort of do all my operations on the stack itself, and then write that to memory. And then, so far we've been working with bits, but a natural step above that is to have composite operations. For example, maybe I manipulate 64 bits at once on the stack, and I could have, you know, an operation that allows me to do 64-bit addition as just one big operation in my program. And all of this is sort of equivalent to Boolean circuits still. It's just a different way of representing a Boolean circuit. And the advantage of the sort of stack machine model is that it's much closer to real programs you want. And then the, the next step above stack machines is you add in RAM where the addresses aren't hard-coded into the program. So this is RAM where, for example, I can pop a value off the stack and use that as the address I want to read or write from. And the advantage of doing this is that now I can read and write to secret parts of memory. So this is interesting, for example, for doing like table lookups because I can sort of look up in a table as a way to branch efficiently without revealing where I'm looking up a value. And so that's quite interesting. And the reason why I'm interested in having sort of stack machines with RAM, including with secret addresses, is because that maps to practical programs and practical high-level things you might want to prove stuff about. So one example of a language that's interesting and that maps well to this model is WASM or WebAssembly. So WebAssembly has been sort of used as a very cross-platform bytecode. So a lot of different languages have tool chains that allow them to compile to WebAssembly, including C, Rust, Go, etc. And it's mainly used in the browser. That's what it was designed for. So it allows you to write a program and then run it in the browser. And it's mainly used for like computationally intensive things. For example, if I'm implementing some cryptography in Rust, I may want to use that in the browser. That's a debate for another day, but if I do want it to use it in the browser, uh, having WASM is quite convenient because it allows me to run this expensive computational... Oh, cryptography can sometimes be expensive if it's sort of unoptimized, but by having WASM, this is a bytecode that's very convenient to be JIT compiled into assembly, so it runs basically almost as fast as if I had a native program. Whereas if I wrote it in JavaScript, it would be difficult to get that kind of speed. So that's a use case for WASM. Another one is smart contracts. So I think uh, Cosmos has uh, this Cosmos WASM thing, which is quite, well, I don't know if it's quite mature, but it's certainly mature than like the research projects I've seen at EPFL. There was a somebody's semester project when I was there. Well, I'm still there, but when I was doing my uh, bachelor's projects, there was another, uh, another person who was doing their, theirs on uh, WASM smart contracts. So that's, that was certainly less mature than Cosmos's implementation. So if smart contracts start getting written in WASM, you know, it'd be the perfect thing to try and look into doing ZK proofs on, the same way that people are making ZK EVMs uh, right now. So in WASM, you have a stack machine. So the operations uh, work with the stack. 
but you also have a global memory space and you can read and write to secret addresses. They don't even, they don't really think of them as secret because the, the notion of private and public inputs isn't present in WASM. You'd have to add that as sort of metadata, but you can, you can read an address from the stack and then write to it, which means effectively if the address, if the value on the stack you're reading happens to be private because of sort of the data flow that you have, then you do end up having to handle secret addresses. And I think this private public thing brings me to a point I want to talk about a bit is that since WASM has no notion of public and private, you need to add this as metadata somehow. So one sort of way to type this is to have a pervasive uh, kind of typing throughout the program. So let's say we had a different bytecode. It might be quite convenient for us to have private and public labels throughout the code and maybe even separate operations out. So I have a public, you know, read to a public memory space. I have a private read to a private, private memory space and have explicit operations using public and private inputs. Maybe even each variable in the program is going to be private or public. This is very convenient because it makes compiling to circuits and your sort of lower level ZK bytecode much easier because you can distinguish between private and public operations which have different semantics, first of all, but also much, much different performance characteristics when doing your proving. What's tricky with WASM is that doing this pervasive metadata is impossible. Instead, the approach I'm leaning towards is that you have private and public as sort of metadata annotations on your main function. So your main function accepts several inputs, and you say, okay, these are the inputs that are public. And, other, and that sort of trickles down through the rest of your program, because anything that touches a private input sort of becomes private, and anything that just touches public inputs becomes public, and or stays public and constants are assumed to be public as well. And so then it's, it's, you really want to track stuff as much as possible to make sure that you use as many public operations as are allowed by, by the semantics of the program you happen to have. And another important thing you might want to do is you might want to split the memory space up so that you can add range constraints. So you might want to say, okay, this section of memory is public. And if you ever do a private read or write to that place, then I want like the program to fail. So at each of the, the reads and writes, you sort of assert that the address you're reading and writing to fits in the correct ranges for private addresses. And you might also want to remove memory accesses entirely if possible. So if I'm doing, you know, memory accesses, and I know that I could sort of replace that with like using the stack instead, I want to do that because then that avoids the overhead of uh, proving stuff about memory accesses, which is much much slower than just proving stuff about stack manipulations. So you'd want to try and employ a lot of tricks and a lot of static analysis of your WASM in order to be able to compile it. So that's something I've started thinking about, but I probably have much more thoughts when I actually try and compile WASM into suitable Boolean circuits with RAM, which is something I'm eventually trying to do with this project called Rembu. So Rembu is sort of my implementation of the KKW MPC in the head protocol. It's going, it's undergoing a bit of a rewrite right now. The eventual goal is to support Boolean circuits with RAM, hence the name Rembu. And one thing I have in mind is being able to compile WASM into those circuits. 
because I think it would be kind of an interesting project. And so initially, I, I was very focused on the stack machine thing, and I still think stack machines are going to be essential as like a maybe a mid-level thing between WASM and Boolean circuits because it's much more convenient. I mean, it's it's very convenient to represent WASM given that WASM itself has the semantics of a stack machine. So having a stack machine specialized in zk proofs is, is quite useful. Initially, I had that also for the representation of the bytecode you need for simulations and the MPC and the head protocol. And the way this worked is that for efficiency reasons, because in my fir first uh, forwarding the MPC in the head as a product, I wrote a very you know by-the-books implementation called Boohoo. And that was of the ZKBoo paper, which is a predecessor to KKW. And this one, it was very by the book in the sense that all the operations really manipulated things bit by bit. And this is inefficient because you're sort of, I mean, you're manipulating things bit by bits, but you know, CPUs can handle many, much more than one bit at a time. So that's quite inefficient. And there was also no parallelism or multi-threading or stuff like that. So it wasn't designed for performance. It was designed for understandability and, and having fun and learning. And so my initial idea with Rimbu was to get around this problem. Instead, the stack machine would have big operations. So you'd, for example, do a 64-bit and, you know, doing many bits at once, or 64-bit addition, stuff like that. And this is interesting because many real-world algorithms are not specified bit by bit as Boolean circuits, but are rather specified as chunky Boolean circuits. So for example, if I'm implementing SHA-2, I need 64, well, if, it, if it's SHA-256, I need 32-bit additions, and uh, I don't know if it, it uses multiplications, I forget. But it's additions, rotations, XORs, for sure. And you can represent all those chunkily quite well. And the idea here is that, well, since I'm doing these big chunky operations, even if I have to do 200 simulations of them because the program is structured in this way, it's not you know the end of the world to do it like this. The other alternative is instead you do bit-by-bit -bit operations, but here's the, the fun part, rather than doing 200 simulations sort of sequentially or in multiple threads, you instead pack bits into registers. So for example, maybe I put several simulations into one, re one register. So maybe if there's 64 bits in a register, I can do, be doing sort of 64 simulations at a time. So that's one idea. And I, I'm sort of rewriting to move towards that second approach because the, the issue with um, chunky operations is that you can't always do them. For example, I mentioned SHA-256. It's kind of interesting because there they use 32-bit operations. So there's a sort of inefficiency there because like you could be doing 64-bit operations. And you know sometimes you need to do bit-by-bit -bit things. So when you do additions, uh, you you kind of need to fall back into the bit-by-bit -bit range when you're doing proving because your proof system really only knows about AND and XOR, so you have to decompose everything in terms of those operations. So if you're doing addition, you can't just do addition. You have to do AND and XOR. And basically, if you do the SIMD approach, so that's where you pack multiple simulations into the same register, you support Boolean circuits directly, and I think this probably leads to better efficiency because with Boolean circuits, it's sort of, there's essentially no overhead beyond the fact that you're doing operations bit by bit. Because you're basically, you're representing exactly what's happening bit by bit. So if you can make 
bit operations not slow by packing them together and doing other tricks like that, then that's sort of ideal because there's no lost overhead. Whereas if you do a 32-bit operation in the chunky model, it's sort of wasted because you could have done a 64-bit operation instead. So that's why I'm moving towards a SIMD approach. The specific way I'm doing it is that in the simulation, you have essentially four parties simplifying how QQW works. One of those parties is really like the masks because it's pre-processing. So you have three parties and then another one. Actually, no, I think it's four part. It's five because you have four parties and then you have like one party, which is essentially just the masks. But that's details that, that are better explained in the blog post. Anyhow, you have basically five parties. Let's leave it at that. And the way I've done it is that each party, so the naive way to do it is you do it bit by bit. So like you, for each party, you have like their memory space, because going back to the sort of the right once model of graph computations, you, each party has their, their sort of memory. And, you know, I, if I need to do an XOR, I can do that locally. So I read in two bits from the memory, and then I push a new bit to the, to the memory by XORing the bits together. And the idea with the SIMD approach is that rather than each party being sort of one execution, now each party is 64 executions at the same time. So instead of reading one bit, two bits from memory, and then XORing them together, I read two 64-bit words from memory, and I XOR them together. And so that's the same as basically doing the bit-by-bit -bit approach, but for 64 simulations at once. So I still have sort of five chunks of memory for each party, but each of those chunks is doing 64 simulations in parallel. And that's on, on a single thread, of course. And I need to do this, I need to do 192 simulations in total with these five parties. So I do this by doing three threads. So I have three threads in parallel, each of which is doing these 64 simulations at once. And if you need to do ands, you need to have some communication between parties, but this just involves basically reading from different, each of the each of the five memories and then combining the, the results together. And you can combine results together with 64-bit operations doing basically 64 simulations at once. Uh, another approach is to do, uh, which Reverie, another library for KKW does, which is much more advanced than mine. <laughs> uh, they do sort of eight by eight. So rather than rather than having five different different chunks of memories, each of which represents many simulations, instead in each chunk, you have multiple parties. So I have maybe, you know, eight, they have eight parties next to each other and, and then eight simulations of those to make up a register. And I think that approach is more complicated. <laughs> I don't think this is really worth it. This advantage is that you need sort of like more MD intrinsics to do clever bit manipulations throughout because you're sort of mixing these parties together inside of the same register. Uh, whereas with my approach, you pay a, a sort of perhaps more overhead if you can't keep everything in registers. But it's conceptually simpler because basically each each party has its own chunk of memory. It's just that you're simulating 64 parallel executions, but there's no interference between stuff. It's 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 sort of like if you were implementing the bit by bit approach except you have 64 bits at once, so you get 64 times the number of simulations. There is one tricky thing, though, that KKW, in essence, requires a random generator for each party in each simulation. And 
what this means is that you have to sort of generate all the random bits you need and then you need to do a bit by bit transpose to get it into this sort of packed format because what i want is not essentially when i generate some random numbers i generate let's say 64 bits at a time well that's for each party but i need just the next bit right and i need the next bit for all 64 simulations in parallel so i need to do a transpose to convert 64 bits from each party each simulation like that I need to transpose it so that I get one bit from each simulation 64 at a time so that's one very important operation that you have to do a lot is this transpose both at the beginning to turn random bits into the correct chunks and then at the end when you have sort of the transcript of the protocol which is basically the transcript for 64 protocols bit by bit so I have one bit for each of the 64 protocols, the next bit for each of the 64 packed of the registers, and I'm going to transpose that so that I get 64 bits from protocol from simulation one, then the next 64 bits from simulation one, etc. Then I have a different part of memory which, which is all the bits from simulation two, etc. And I have 64 of these sections where it's all contiguous. Whereas the end result of the of the SIMD approach is that you have sort of interleaved bits for all of the simulations. So it's you know, bit for simulation one, then two, then three, etc. Then the next bit for simulation one, two, three, etc. I think uh, explaining bitwise transposes over audio is, is stretching the limit of the podcast format. <laughs> so, yeah. To sum it up a bit, uh, Rembu is sort of this project I'm working on. Uh, the eventual goal is to be able to support WASM as a sort of ZK-proof substrate. And for that, I need to support Boolean circuits and RAM. And I think I'm going to go via stack machines as a, as a bit of a middle level layer of compilation at some point. So I think that that sort of concludes for now the kind of thoughts I wanted to have about MPC in the head. I want to write at some point a series of blog posts explaining this stuff to have a bit of a more permanent uh, form of storage but it was certainly nice to get some thoughts out of my head about how to go about this stuff. Uh, talking about it really clears up uh, the mind. So hopefully, hopefully I wasn't transposing scrambled thoughts into scrambled reflections on the podcast, and some of this was enjoyable. Anyhow, until uh, the next one, this was the Cold Dive, and I was Lucas, aka Corona Kirby, and. Wish you a good day.